right. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Acts chapter 5 as we continue in our series that we've called Rise, where we are talking about the, uh, the rise of the church and the rise of God's kingdom on this earth. Uh, we've been walking through these, uh, these passages in Acts for the last several weeks, and we will continue to do so. Uh, but today we are going to cover quite a bit of ground, and uh, hopefully make sense of it all as we go through. Uh, but we're going to jump through and see what takes place as the church really begins to face some new and difficult things. And so in Acts chapter 5, starting verse 17, that's where we're going to begin reading today. And uh, just to kind of remind you what's been going on, last week Dave did a phenomenal job talking about uh, Ananias and Sapphira and uh, the, the gifts that people were bringing to the church to present to them. And then as, uh, as there were some, some things that were taking place where Ananias and Sapphira lied about a gift they gave to the church and died as a result, difficult kind of situation there. Uh, and then there was healing that was taking place in the church. And as there were people who were being healed, uh, the, uh, the church started to see, or the people outside of the church started to see this power that was taking place. And uh, the Bible makes an interesting statement that says that the people held all of the disciples and all of the church in awe and great respect, and yet nobody wanted to be around them. Uh, And then the very next verse says, and yet every day God added to their numbers those who were being saved, which meant that the church was living out the mission of a relationship with Jesus by not expecting people to come to the temple to be with them and learn about Jesus, but that the church was going to the community to talk about Jesus. And so as that continues to happen and people are being healed, uh, the next thing that we find in Acts chapter 5 verse 17 says this, then the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with what? What does your Bible say? Jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared what the people would do in maybe stoning them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, this man being Jesus. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed. 
and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So as we pick up this morning and what we see as the beginning of this story, as the apostles are continuing to teach and people are being healed and numbers, great numbers of people are coming into faith, the church is growing. And it's interesting because you see what takes place in the mind of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the ruling party of the, uh, the nation of Israel. In verse 17, it says the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Like they look out at the landscape of what's taking place in Jerusalem and their hearts become jealous. Why? Because the apostles of Jesus are leading the charge of introducing people to salvation through Jesus Christ and the church is growing. And what happens when one organization tends to grow? Another organization tends not to grow, right? And so the Sadducees see what's taking place, and as the church grows, there's more and more attention being given to this and less and less attention being given to them. And the Bible says that they look at the landscape, and they're jealous of the disciples. They're jealous of the church. And so on your notes this morning, if you're taking some notes, jealousy, as it's defined, just means this. It's an unhappy or an angry feeling of wanting to have what someone else has. Now, I know none of you have ever been jealous about anything. You've never wanted to have something that somebody else had, right? That's never been your issue, never been your problem. We don't have to worry about confession of sin today regarding jealousy or anything like that. No, um, I have children. I know what jealousy looks like. Heck, I know what jealousy looks like for me. And so um, uh, jealousy is one of those issues, though. The high priests, they become jealous. And so they see God doing something, and they're not part of it. So their first thought is, we have to stop that. We've got to kill it. It's time to cut the head off of this movement. It's time to end this thing. And it's all built on the fact that they're jealous of what God is doing that they're not part of. They see what someone else has and they're jealous. And jealousy is a feeling that we can have as Christians, even against our own brothers and sisters in the faith. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, have you ever seen someone around you that's growing in their faith in Christ? And you kind of feel like you're stagnant in your faith. And you see them, and instead of being like leading the charge to applaud them and encourage them to keep going, you're kind of jealous of the fact that they're really growing in your faith and in their faith, and you're not. And all of a sudden, jealousy creeps in, and we're kind of, oh, I wish I was the one that was doing that. I wish I was gro- Why do they get to be growing in their faith? That's what I want. And jealousy starts to seep in. Or maybe you've seen someone that God is really using to influence people's lives. And you don't feel like you're having much of an influence on people's lives. And instead of being excited for them and knowing that God is doing a great work in them and that we're on the same team, we're brothers and sisters in this race together, that instead of being excited, we find ourselves being jealous. That we find ourselves in a position where we're going, I wish I was influencing people. I'm kind of angry that you have that opportunity and I don't. And jealousy creeps in. Jealousy always causes division 
If it's in your home, if there's jealousy toward your spouse in some area, intimacy is going to be just, just torn apart in your home when there's jealousy between you and your spouse. It's going to be ripped apart. In your friendships, jealousy will cause a divide that can destroy relationships. Those of you who are in high school and college, this is a tough one, right? All of a sudden, you're best friends with somebody. You know, you and your 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 favorite, you know, your best friend, your girl, your friend, and then all of a sudden they find a guy that starts dating this person, and all of a sudden now I'm jealous because you're spending all of your time with him instead of with me. Guys, it works the same way for us. That we kind of go, what, what's going on here? I'm, I'm jealous of the time you're spending now. Or why don't I have that relationship that you have? Some young singles, you start to see your friends get married or get engaged. And all of a sudden you're going, where's my ring? What's going on? Why? I'm so jealous of you. The person that I used to love and be you know, respectful toward, now I'm kind of jealous of what you have going on in your life. And jealousy can creep in. It can rip things apart. In our friendships, it can be destroyed. Even in the church, jealousy keeps us from our mission because we're too busy being angry about the things that God's doing in someone else's life than to encourage them and to be pushing toward. And that's what we find going on with the, um, the Sanhedrin. They're jealous of the disciples. And so their jealousy to the religious leaders, it lands the disciples right back in jail. This is the second time they've been imprisoned now. Uh, the first time they were in prison, they had healed a man. Peter and John had healed a man that had been crippled from birth. And they gave him his, his ability to walk. God healed him through the disciples. And the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, threw him in prison. And they had a trial. And they decided at that moment that, okay, you didn't really do anything wrong. We can't really find any fault in this. And so we're just going to reprimand you. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> like, stop it. We're kind of angry that you did this thing. So just don't do that anymore. Stop teaching in the name of Jesus. Stop healing people. And Peter and John say, you determine what's right for us. Should we listen to you or should we obey God? Because God has told us to speak the name of Jesus and to heal people. So you decide. But we're going to go and we're going to do what God's told us to do. So they continue that journey. They continue teaching the people. They continue healing people. And it lands them right back in jail again. The Sanhedrin arrests them. They lead them back to jail. And yet this time, their imprisonment doesn't last very long. Look at verses 18 through 20. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Now, I think it's kind of interesting that the angel has to tell the apostles this, that he has to tell Jesus' disciples this. And here's why I think he does. I think he gives them specific instructions because if you've now been imprisoned twice for doing something, don't you start in your human nature kind of going, you know, maybe I really should stop talking about Jesus. This isn't always working out for us so well. Every time we do this, we find ourselves back in jail. Maybe we shouldn't. And so the angel lets them out of jail. And what's he say? Hey, guys, don't go home tonight. Go to the temple. And get ready to teach the people again. Because when the sun comes up, you're going to have the spotlight on you again. Don't, take, don't let this discourage you. Don't let this get you down. Go right back to doing what you were doing. And so the angel sends the disciples back to, uh, to the temple courts. And once again, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. This time when the Sanhedrin go to look for them, can you imagine what that conversation looked like? Okay, you guys, go get the disciples out of jail. Bring them to the trial. They go, nobody's in jail. That's a little awkward situation, isn't it? In fact, the Bible said that the captain of the temple guard and the Sanhedrin wondered what would come of this. Because there was the possibility that a lot of bad things could happen to those who were guards of the jail. That they could lose their job. Worse, they could lose their lives. And so you start to see what's going to happen as a result of this. 
And as they're trying to determine what are we going to do, somebody comes in and says, hey, the disciples, the guys you arrested, they're back in the temple. They're preaching again. So they march right back down to the temple and they arrest them again. But this time the Bible says they don't use any force because they're afraid. The people have all this affection for the disciples, so they can't use force to arrest them because they're afraid they'll get stoned to death. They wanted to kill the disciples, and yet they find themselves in a position where they're going, if we do anything against these people in front of this crowd who's affectionate toward them, who loves these guys, they're going to take it out on us. So they gently bring them back to trial. And they stand them before the trial, and they have this conversation The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin in verse 27, verse 28. They say, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, which is an interesting position to take because they are guilty of Jesus' blood. They're the exact ones who went out and grabbed Jesus at night and tried him erroneously and crucified him publicly. And yet they don't like the fact that people are being told that they did this. Hey, don't make us guilty of this man's blood. You are guilty of this man's blood. What are we supposed to do? And so Peter just launches into another short message. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And so we see... That Peter's not ashamed to stand in front of this, uh, these religious leaders and say, this is on you. Look what God did as you took Jesus to the cross. God brought him back to life. And he has not only brought him back to life, he has exalted him to his rightful position in heaven at the right hand of God where he rules and reigns as the Savior of the universe. He is God of everything. He's not just a man. He is God. And the Father has exalted him to a position of power and authority. He's given him his rightful place. So a man named Gamaliel steps up. He dismisses the disciples out of the room and says, You guys go. We've got to have a little uh, roundtable discussion here for just a minute. And Gamaliel has this conference with the other Sanhedrin. He says, Listen, We've seen people like this before. We've seen movements like this before. And when somebody raises up uh, a crowd or a group of rabble-rousers and they start these insurrections, when the leader dies, it all goes away. We've seen that happen. He lists two references of people that have led a charge like this. He says, don't do anything to these men. Just let them go. Because if this is of God, you can't stop it anyway. And that's true of everything in the world. We cannot stop what God is going to do. You can try, and many have over the course of history. They've tried to stop the action of God, the movement of God, and it is impossible. You cannot stop what God wants to do. Man and Satan can never stop what God wants to do. What his purposes are will be accomplished. And so Gamaliel convinces them not to do anything, but they have the men flogged. They have the disciples flogged and beaten. And then they send them out. And I love what the Bible says in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So let me ask you a question this morning. How do you react when suffering or persecution comes your way? 
when suffering and persecution is right in front of you, what's your response? It's interesting because we see this, the disciples, they leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been able to suffer on account of Jesus. And yet, sometimes for us, we kind of get a couple of different attitudes. Maybe it's a, a woe is me kind of attitude. Why do I have to go through this? I can't believe that of, of all the people in the world, I would have to suffer some disgrace in the name of Jesus or for his sake. Why, why me, God? And so we have these moments where we take this woe is me attitude. Or maybe you've even been at the point where you've questioned why would God allow this? God, why would you allow this to happen? God, you could stop my suffering. You could stop my persecution. Why are you allowing this to take place? And you question God. And you almost put God on trial against your circumstances. And yet that's not what we find the disciples doing at all. When the disciples are beaten, they leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Here's what the disciples knew and maybe we don't, or, and we should. The disciples knew Jesus had told them that following him would result in persecution. And sometimes I fear that we do an injustice in the church because when we tell people the gospel, sometimes I don't think we go to this extreme level of saying, as you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we want you to do that. God loves you. He has a plan for your life. He wants to forgive you of your sins. He wants to give you a way to get to heaven, to be with him forever. He wants you to be able to escape the punishment of hell for all of eternity so that you can have him and have his glory for all of time. You want that, right? And we stop there. And we never say these next words. In the process of you coming into faith in Christ, there's a great chance that you will face persecution in this life because of the name of Jesus. Jesus promised us that. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 and 23, Jesus said this, All men will hate you because of me. When they persecute you in one town, go to the next. Jesus promised. No disciple is greater than his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. That's a part of the Christian life. And it's not a part of the Christian life to run away from. It's a part of the Christian life that should be embraced. Because just like the disciples, when they face persecution, they rejoice in going, we get to take part in a small way what Jesus took part in. He was beaten and crucified and died on our behalf. And now we get to resonate with that because we see how the suffering, the persecution of our faith identifies us with our Savior. What a powerful place for us to be. Suffering is an expectation within the Christian faith because we follow Jesus. So let's don't act surprised by suffering and trials regardless of how small and insignificant they may seem, or regardless of how grand in size they are. The truth is, is that many of us, most of us, suffer very little as a result of our faith. We are blessed to live in a nation that suffering and persecution doesn't happen on huge levels, at least to the point where people are being killed simply because they are Christians. Whereas that's not the case in a lot of parts of this world where people are publicly killed simply because they identify with Jesus. 
where people's property are taken from them, where they are forced to flee from their homes simply because of Jesus, because of their identity with Him and in Him. And we see this happening all over our world. ISIS is in the news all the time, where they're slaughtering Christians, and not just slaughtering them, videotaping it and distributing it to the world to see. Simply because someone identifies with Christ and says, I can't stop speaking the name of Jesus. I can't disassociate with Jesus. You determine what's right. To obey you, who's telling me to stop, or to obey God, who said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And so we see that we as Christians are privileged, really, to suffer and to be a part of the relationship with Jesus. But not only do we get relationship with Jesus, but God also uses persecution to sanctify us. That word sanctify just means to, to change us, to make us more like Christ along the way. The Christian life is a journey. It's a process that we go through. And God is sanctifying us, changing us little by little to be more like Jesus. He's changing us from the inside out. And as he changes us, James says this, James 1 2 through 4 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. That's a great promise for us. That James says, listen, consider it joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because God is working through the trials to bring you to a place of maturity. And I love how James says this because he goes, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, because you know, you know. How do I go through trials? Because I know what comes out on the other side of it. Maturity in Christ. Because I know that God is refining me through it to look more like his son. That's why we go through trials with joy. Consider it pure joy. Are you serious? Joy, like not happiness, not eagerness, but joy to be suffering for Christ? Yes. Consider it joy because you know that what God is working out on the other side of that is for your good and for His glory. That He is working through these things. So Peter and the rest of the disciples walk away from being flogged rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Now, Peter later would write in 1 Peter chapter 4, listen to what Peter would say. I always think it's interesting to see, okay, when someone has experienced something, what are their feelings about it? Luke tells us they went away rejoicing. Luke wasn't there. He wasn't one of the ones getting beaten at this point. It's a little bit easier to write that. and like, hey, the disciples went away rejoicing. I didn't experience that for myself, so it's good to talk about them. Listen to what Peter has to say. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. 
And I love what Peter says there. He talks about the fact that that this trial or these sufferings begin with the house of God. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. The judgment that we face is from the world. When we're put on trial by the world, we face a judgment of theirs. But Peter goes on and says, but there will be a day when God will judge. And you might stand trial before a public court or before the court of perception. But don't worry about that judgment. The judgment of God is what counts. And that day is coming. So the disciples being flogged in Acts chapter 5 is really only the beginning of persecution in the church. We're going to skip forward a little bit to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 6, we find that the disciples have been doing ministry, and yet there is um, some tension that arises in the church because some of the widows and orphans are not being taken care of well. And so the apostles uh, promote this group of men named deacons, and they give them responsibility to handle acts of service within the community and to do the work of the church so that the apostles can continue to preach and to teach and to study. And so as we get through Acts chapter 6, one of the men that's mentioned, his name uh, is Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen stands up and we find out he's not just a, a servant, he's also a pretty good teacher himself. And Stephen gets this fire inside of him to proclaim the truth of God. And he preaches a message in front of a crowd of people that, I mean, it's just fiery. And so you go, go back and read it. We're not going to take the time this morning to read through it all. But go back and read Acts chapter 7 and what, what Stephen says in his message. He goes back and gives an account of the history of Israel and how things lead up to today for, for where they are at this point in time in history and how Jesus fits into the picture. And it's a really incredible look at what the role of Christ is in bringing salvation to his people. And so we see this all take place. But then at the end of the message, when, Peter, when Stephen is teaching, he starts to say again the same thing that Peter and John said. He accuses the religious leaders of being guilty of the blood of Jesus. And this time, they're not going to have a trial. This time, we're not going to bring them before the Sanhedrin court. We're not going to have them in jail overnight. This time, forget that. We've done that. We tried the trial. We warned them once. That didn't work. They went out and preached in the name of Jesus. We uh, flogged them once. That didn't work. They went out and they preached in the name of Jesus. So what are we going to do with Stephen? Let's stone him to death. And so the Sanhedrin and the the crowd take Stephen and they begin to stone him to death. And it's interesting, Stephen sees a vision as he's being stoned and he says, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And he asks Jesus in that moment, just as Jesus did on the cross, he says, Father, would you forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? And the Bible says simply that Stephen closed his eyes and he went to sleep. Stephen's death was just the beginning, though. The flogging of the disciples and the death of Stephen. Because look in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. We're introduced to Saul for the first time. He's going to step into the picture in just a, a couple of chapters. And on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So I want us to just stop there and look at this. This scattering came to be known as the diaspora or the dispersion. And it's really fascinating. The Greek word carries the idea of that of seed being scattered. That when Luke writes this, he says that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church and the disciples were scattered. 
And the, the word he literally uses brings up the imagery of a farmer scattering seed so that a harvest might grow and plants might come up. And the Bible says that as they were scattered, they went to Judea and to Samaria. This is what I find fascinating about this. Tertullian, the church father, wrote this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Those who had been scattered preached the word in all of the territories they went through. And it raises this imagery to go back and look at something from the Old Testament. So I want to make a parallel quickly from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, right after the flood of Noah, when they come off of the ark, what does God command Noah and his sons to do? He says, I want you to go into all the world, scatter out across the entire earth, and remultiply. Reproduce and repopulate the earth. And yet the Bible carries that with them for about a chapter. And it says, then they came to a plain in a place called Shinar. And there they settled. And they decided to build a city and a great tower that would reach into the heavens. And what's fascinating about this is that God said to the people, I want you to go and fill the entire earth. And the Bible says that they got to a place and they settled. And what you see when we settle is that we miss what God wants to do. God had a point in spreading them out across the earth. So God's judgment in this motion, in this part of the story, is that he divides their languages. Remember the story? That God confuses their languages. So now we get all these different world languages. And now they wake up and they can't continue working on the city. They can't continue building the tower because they can't communicate with one another. So the way I've always kind of processed it is that they start, as you just talk, you start to find people you can understand, right? And you group up and you go, okay, we can all understand each other. We should go find a place where we can all go live and understand each other. And another group will find each other and understand each other and go find a place they can live. And so they're scattered over the entire earth, which was God's point in the first place. When Jesus left the disciples after his crucifixion and his resurrection, do you remember what he told them? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the entire earth. And now we're eight chapters into the book of Acts, and the disciples are still in where? Jerusalem. We're still in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the whole earth. I want you to go. And yet in Acts chapter 8, we're still in Jerusalem. So this persecution breaks out. And it says, on the day of Stephen's stoning, a great persecution broke out against the entire church. And here's what's fascinating. Here's what happens next. And the disciples scattered to Judea and Samaria. So God, through his gracious love, uses persecution to do his work, to bring about the church's advancement, to carry on his desires. What Satan wanted to stop, what man wanted to stop is unstoppable. And just like Gamaliel said, if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only be fighting against yourselves. I said earlier that persecution isn't something that we have to deal with on a grand scale here in the United States. And yet around the world and even here, I believe it's coming very quickly. That for those of us who are in Christ, persecution is going to be coming more and more. And so I want to just share some statistics with you to let you understand and know the suffering that's going on within the lives of our brothers and sisters across the world. Each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Each month. 
Every month, 214 churches and Christian-owned properties are destroyed. Every month, 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, such as beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, and forced marriages. On the day of Acts chapter 8, verse 1, when it said that a great persecution broke out against the church, that persecution is continuing today. The church is going to enjoy a time of peace in the coming chapters, but it's not going to last. Because God actually allows persecution and suffering to come in His church for the point of drawing us into relationship with Christ. He advances the gospel through the persecution of His church. Just like Luke said, like the scattering of seed, the gospel is advanced through the persecution and the suffering of the church. And while we might not face these types of persecution, it's not impossible to think that a day is coming that we will. And so I wanted to give you just four things quickly as we close this morning for some personal application because we can look at this passage of Scripture and see, okay, that's what the church went through. That's what they dealt with. That's how they handled things. But how do I handle things? What do I do as a believer in Christ when suffering or persecution comes my way? If I'm fortunate enough to to be counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus, how do I handle suffering and persecution? And so let me give you four things quickly to ask yourself, four questions to ask yourself when suffering and persecution comes your way. Number one is this, and if you're taking notes this morning, write these down. What is the persecution a result of? What's it the result of? Did I bring the persecution on myself as a result of improperly representing Jesus in my faith? In other words, was I being hateful or arrogant or judgmental or unloving? Because let's be honest, we can do that sometimes. And we react in surprising ways when people see our response to situations and then we're surprised when they come back critically against us. Where we're supposed to carry the name of Jesus with grace and with love. Sometimes we're harsh and we're bitter and we're angry. And so we say things and do things that bring persecution on ourselves. And we have to be understanding that we can often be the result of our own persecution. Or are we being persecuted because people simply see Jesus in us? And when they see Jesus, they don't like what they see. There's a difference in those two things. We have to be careful about causing persecution to come on ourselves because we're arrogant and prideful and stupid rather than loving and graceful. Here's the second question. When we face persecution and suffering, what is God showing me about myself? When you go through times of suffering and persecution, what's God teaching you about you? Are you being too self-reliant, too independent from God where you're saying, I can do life on my own, this is about me, I can handle this, this is what I'm going to be about? Are you independent and too self-reliant and so God is using suffering in some way to draw you back to dependency on Him? Maybe you're just too comfortable in your life. And you kind of learn about yourself. When I go through suffering, I learn that I've surrounded my life with comfort instead of being concerned about the gospel. That I want what's easy instead of what's about God. And so... What do I learn about myself when I face suffering and persecution? The third question is this. When I go through times of suffering and persecution, what is God teaching me about other people? What should I learn about other people when I suffer or face persecution? 
And I think one of the things we can learn through this is that suffering is universal, that you're not alone. Sometimes we go through difficult trials and, and periods of suffering and persecution for our faith in Christ, and we feel like we're the only ones. But you're not alone. There are people around the world who are suffering. And you're connected with them because of your relationship with Christ. The other thing we learn about other people when we suffer is that other people need Jesus desperately. That when we go through pers- uh, excuse me, suffering and, and persecution, that we start to realize there are people who need Jesus desperately. Even those enemies of ours, those people who would take advantage of us, they need Jesus. And then finally, here's the last thing. What is God revealing to me about him? What is God revealing to me about himself? Is he revealing to you his faithfulness, his grace, his power to sustain and provide? God wants you to know about him that when you go through times of suffering and persecution, he is able to carry you. He is more than confident. He is more than able. He is more than capable of taking care of you through your suffering. He wants you to come to him. And so the church goes through this time where they face suffering and persecution, but they find joy in it all. And the gospel continues to spread. Here's what the world watching wants to see and needs to see. When we as Christians suffer because of our faith, on whatever level it is, small or great, they want to see that we are unshakable in our faith in Christ that we will stand with Him and that He takes care of us. That's what a watching world wants to know, is that your faith is real, that God is real, and that you find joy because God's bringing you to a place of maturity through Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You so much for the opportunity to suffer on your behalf. God, we're grateful for the nation that we live in and that we have religious freedoms and that there are opportunities for us to gather on a day like today and not be worried that someone's going to come through the door and kill all of us. Although, God, something like that could very easily happen. Father, if it did, my prayer would be that in Kingsport, the gospel would advance because of the, the suffering and the persecution of your saints. And God, for those around the world who are facing suffering and persecution today, Lord, would you sustain them? Would you uphold them? Would you give them strength and power that they haven't known so that they can stand their trials? And God, for us, would you teach us? Teach us about who we are. Teach us about other people and teach us about you when we go through trials. Father, let us rejoice in you because we know you're bringing maturity out of it. We love you, God, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.